Why, hello everyone. What is going on in the world today? Probably a lot, but it's early. It's 7 o'clock in the morning for me. Hope everyone is doing well, well enough as can be, right? I am your host, Josh. I use she, her pronouns. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the show. This is In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and proletarian revolution. Revolution in general, national liberation. We're going to talk about it all. We've talked about it all and we're going to keep talking about it all as long as you folks keep tuning in. So please let me know what it is that makes you stop by. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what shows you'd like me to go on or check out myself, which topics or authors or books or histories would you like me to cover uh, or ask to come on the show. I got two super exciting interviews coming up next week. I don't want to spoil them. But you folks should be on the lookout for those. And I will definitely do my best to post around about them once they are published. But other than that, folks, I have mostly been kicking it, trying to make it through work, trying to get through this sickness, trying to quit smoking tobacco, um, and just trying to figure out, you know, who I am in this world as we all are trying to figure out what the meaning of life is, especially when so little of my life on a day-to-day basis gives me any meaning. So if any of this resonates with you, sounds interesting, please stick around. And like I said, let me know what you think of this show. You can get a hold of me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. There's no caps or spaces or special characters in that. You can also find me on social media. I'm on Instagram, indefensiveliberation. And I am also on Twitter, redstarbitch420. And you can also check out, if you are interested... The website I have up that doesn't really have a whole lot of information on there or articles as of yet, but I uh, plan to produce and publish more, so check that out. Let me know how I can make it look better. I'm not great with web design, and I used Wix, uh, which was good for the most part, but I certainly could use any help that y'all are willing to offer. Anyways... I have been trying to keep up with a lot of different things. I am someone who can't really stay focused on, you know, like one or a few things. So I tend to bounce between a lot of different media, a lot of different content. (coughs) I tend to bounce between... A lot of different subjects as well um, because I really do try to seek out any kind of knowledge or information on things that I'm interested in rather than just wishing I would or wishing I knew more uh, and trying to commit to that. I will say it is very rarely as successful as I would like but 
I do try. Um, and so it's been hard for me to try to come up with good episodes because I feel like I have pretty like 101 awareness of a lot of things, but I don't have like an expertise on many things. Um, so to speak definitively for 30, 45 minutes on something or to investigate it, I don't necessarily have all the, the tools and the information I would need. But, of course, we've talked a lot about international relations between, uh, you know, different uh, developing and developed nations in the world right now. Thinking here, of course, of Russia, of China, of Iran, of uh, Saudi Arabia, the recent, you know, uh, promise to recreate diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, But I'm also thinking here of, like, the relationships that are developing between formerly colonized or currently imperialized and colonized nations around the world. Um, The continued struggles that are happening across continents like Africa show that although the sellouts and the politicians and the higher-ups who are willing to sacrifice the well-being of the nation, the ability to stand independently, to produce for itself, to supply for itself all of its needs, and to ensure its, you know, citizens, its population, a meaningful form of, you know, social security. Because in today's day and age, as things like, you know, in the United States, different programs for child care or for food benefits, like SNAP, was just cut in half. Um, and a sizable portion of that extra money went along with the, the billions of dollars that uh, is going to Ukraine. The Social Security that, you know, and Medicaid that elderly folks and disabled and retired people are uh, supposedly uh, meant to look forward to or think that we have a hope to be able to plug into them in the future is always a question mark. It's always, um, you know, kind of a joke or a talking point that my generation and the generations to come after us and even some of the generations before us um, really don't have any ability to retire, really don't have Social Security. And if they do, like, for example, my grandfather, um, who received Social Security benefits, it only covers, like, a very minimal amount of their monthly expenses For example, for my grandfather, it basically just covered his meds. Um, So that means that anything else or everything else that you would need to purchase within a month, where are you going to get the money from? And of course, we don't have any illusions about 
savings banks or bonds or stocks on this program. And we do understand that the financial sector, the economic system, is set up in a way so as to lead to our economic decline, deterioration, and dependency. What I mean is that we don't live in a system where you can work hard enough, legitimately, where you can hustle, where you can dedicate enough hours in the day, in the week, in the month, in the year, to take yourself from a position of a worker to the position of a ruling class individual or an owner or a capitalist. Even like celebrities, right? Or popular figures who are wealthy, at least in the sense that they have cash, they have money, or they have relationships and opportunities that will make them money. Um, They aren't capitalists. They're not owners. They're not the ruling class. Um, They don't make the decisions and dictate what's produced and what's not produced, how much of it's produced and where, how much people get paid for it, where it goes, who gets to buy it, what it sells for, and who gets the money. They just write their songs or play in the movies or whatever. Run for office. That's not the same. So we see around the world that there's a deterioration in this, like, end-of-life benefit, right? You also see the raise of the retirement age in France leading to massive strikes in uh, all different regions of France where uh, pensioners and where young folks, students, disabled people, nurses, teachers, doctors, firefighters, plumbers, all kinds of uh, different working class people are coming out to support and demand the revocation of this decision and to struggle for better conditions and better wages for those who are working now. We know, however, when we look at the way and reason why things are produced, how much they make, and again, who and where that money goes to is ultimately what decides how how our society runs. So for example, if there's a society where things are priced like randomly based on quote market ideas and can be priced at a level where things like food staples, housing, um, medical supplies, medical assistance, 
education are all priced far outside of the reach of the average working or unemployed person. This is by necessity because in a system where, like this, the profit, the money that is made off of those exorbitant prices goes to the private individuals, corporations, businesses, CEOs, etc., who dictate those private industries, those private markets, cannot and will not give up a portion of that wealth, of that profit, more than they are forced to for the general benefit of all. If you as an individual reap all of the wealth to come from a certain production and your status, your control in that situation, your power, your connection to what we call the means of production would be put out of reach for you if you did not continue to reap and accumulate that wealth off of the backs of the labor of whatever population is producing that or those commodities. By necessity, in a profit-making market, in a profit-making economy. However, there are and have been examples to say that profit need not be the sole dominating factor for production, nor that the wealth accumulated from the production of a nation should go to private profiteering individuals or corporations. You have national liberation struggles and governments that are set up for the purpose of building the productive forces, the ability to produce things, and the modes of production, the actual tools, equipment, mechanisms, machines, spaces, places, capital, and labor that goes into the production of things. So that then they can use the wealth that is accumulated to continue building up these productive forces to fortify their economy and their nation as sovereign, as independent, meaning that in a crisis situation or in a situation where they are not able to purchase 
the same amount of things or the same amount of commodities as they once did because of the variation in prices, it wouldn't have as dire or deadly of an effect on the general population because this country or these countries will have established a economic system, a social structure, which focuses on the needs of the nation. Now, does this mean equally? Does this mean always equitably? I don't think that we can say so. Not because I have this or that criticism about these national liberation struggle governments, but because by necessity, there's only so much that you can do under sanctions, under war, during a revolution, when your entire system has been like tossed out, where (coughs) a sizable portion of your population that previously ran and administered the government programs no longer is willing because of the character of that government to do those things where they flee to the United States or Europe or another nation nearby that's capitalist where they take their wealth their factories their patents, their technology, and they build up the economy or the markets or the products or the modes of production of another nation. That is really how countries like the United States and Europe stay afloat, by stealing all of these people, all of these ideas, all of this wealth, all of these resources from the rest of the world. And that is imperialism. When you have a systematic process where you are thieving, you are sucking the blood out of each and every instrument, each and every industry, each and every avenue of another nation that you can. Not just, you know, going to war with a country or trying to overthrow the government. That happens, unfortunately, all the time. However, conflict in and of itself is not imperialism. And I bring this up because we live in an imperialist world. So if a nation like, for example, Zimbabwe does land reform, that's immediately going to put them on the sanctions list, which it did. That's immediately going to put them in the crosshairs of NATO, which it did that's immediately going to lead to an effective embargo on their import and exports, which it did. And that is a system which, you know, although our better attempts might really work against, we can't just ignore or write out of the equation when we talk about uh, nations like Ghana or Cuba, 
or Venezuela. Because these are nations which, unlike our own, have put the, again, productive forces, the means of production, but also the actual power, the actual ability to decide, the ability to control, the ability to participate in politics, in social systems, in the economy, in a much more equitable fashion than could be provided by a capitalist system, by its own internal necessity for profits. So I bring these things up because a couple things. First of all, we continue to see a sizable amount of confusion by the majority of the population about things like hustle culture, about things like individual wealth accumulation, about consumerism and commodities and the naturalness of them or the necessity for them without really understanding the history and the deep cultural breaks and traditional values which were tossed aside by invading armies of bankers and lawyers and missionaries and armies that previously showed that human history need not be as it is today. So, I mean, this is nothing new to the discussions that we've had on here. But my understanding of human nature is not what we commonly hear referenced by reactionaries, by... Christians, by fascists, where they blame humanity for all of humanity's problems in the sense that they put the onus of blame generally on the human species rather than those members of the human species which took advantage of, exploited, colonized and stole from the remainder of their fellow human beings which is in fact the story of history whether we like it or not there is since the onset of what we call class society which you need not get confused about. All that really means is that there's a group within society known as a class which dominates, dictates, and rules over others or another. 
So in our case, it would be, of course, the working and oppressed class. So people who are forced to labor to survive, people who are chronically unemployed and working odd-end jobs or doing what we consider illegal activities, uh, people and nations around the world who do not have control over their own economies, do not have control over their political and military systems, do not get to dictate the social situations and relations that are present in their society, in their nation, and therein don't have the capacity to, as we might hope through a democratic process, simply change or tweak this because they plainly do not have power. But again, throughout human history, both before and after the onset of class society, of capitalism, we have had human experiences relationships and lived realities which do not reflect what is existent in the capitalist and class societies. Under a socialist system, when we understand that socialism is not the end-all, be-all, can make mistakes, does make mistakes, and is a process, a period, a epoch or an era that works night and day to not only break away from what used to be or what is now and also builds new institutions, new factories, new hospitals, new schools, develops new social relationships, develops new forms of, you know, relationships with even religion develops new forms of national and international ties, develops new understandings of things like indigenous struggles, autonomous land uh, reform, uh, and actually, you know, looks at the landscape as it exists and says, what can we try? What can we do here? And again, one shouldn't look at any socialist nation with a marker of perfection because you can get the red ink out. You can scribble and circle and color and cut through a lot of mistakes, a lot of failures, a lot of clearly wrong decisions made in you know, cases of revolution in the middle of civil war after nations have been invaded and 
after they've fought against fascism or after they've put down a revolu- or a, excuse me a reactionary counter revolutionary coup attempt or in the middle of an active siege campaign whereby no nations banks or uh, corporations are willing to trade with or produce for uh, entire nations this is a false judgment that does not carry weight nor hold value in the context of a real revolutionary struggle or in the context of a real uh, socialist process because how is it exactly that one could expect after nearly, you know, well, I shouldn't even put a number to it, but thousands of years of not only, you know, the awful atrocities and degradation and dehumanization of the transatlantic slave trade, of colonialism, of indigenous genocide, of the installation of patriarchy, of the oppression of, you know, disabled and uh, otherly abled people, the, the, the discrimination, the separation, the segregation, the oppression, the repression against non-white populations, the creation of racism, of xenophobia, of um, homophobia, of transphobia, of uh, Islamophobia, plus just the general social and economic relations of class society where oppression, exploitation, and theft are the mainstays of the day, would it really be feasible or logical to expect that the people coming from that society are likely going to be able to immediately and perfectly overthrow and recreate or create a new, a entirely different society that does not have any of the scars, any of the birthmarks, any of the reverberations or reflections of the old society, even though we've all been raised in it, we've all lived in it our whole lives, we've all been created by it and internalized parts of it. How exactly does this make any kind of sort of fucking sense? You tell me. There's an article called um, The Western Left is Obsessed with Purity, Not Revolution, or something like that, by Jones Manuel, who's a member of the Partido Comunista Brasileiro, um, the PCB, down in Brazil. Uh, you should check that out. But it, it is ingrained into us now that we have to have an opinion on everything. Not only do we have to have an opinion on everything, but our opinion has to be seen as valid and valuable as everyone else's opinion. So you have, like, you know, I'll call them out by name because I think it's kind of corny. You have Rainer Shea's, um, like, newsletter thing. And I was reading that for a while, and I was, like, getting down with it or whatever, right? 
And then he goes on to criticize Gerald Horn about his understanding. Sorry. Really loud, really quick. Here we go. Oh, it wasn't even that loud. Um, He goes on to criticize Gerald Horn and other, you know, intellectuals and radicals and revolutionaries of the kind of tendency that disagrees with the analysis that 1776 was was progressive or was revolutionary and bases his understanding of the American system in colonialism and also in the origins of fascism. And not only that, but other, you know, media left folks, whatever you want to call them, constantly feel they have to have a take. You know, here I am having a take. (laughs) But like, usually what you see in the Western left is frankly just like ignorant and biased criticisms of third world nations and socialist projects from a perspective of, you know, a non-revolutionary with no national or, um, you know, social history of real, actual, quote, proletarian revolution of, like, the white working class and the settler class, but also a counter-revolutionary history against the legitimately revolutionary tendencies of the African populations, of the Latino populations, of the indigenous populations. So, of course, this puritanical, um, ethnocentrist-like mentality comes out because it is like so part and parcel to capitalism to be not only ignorant but also racist uh egocentric individualistic selfish self-centered and you know the majority of us including myself in a lot of cases don't take the serious time that it really would honestly take to have a genuine understanding of these projects you know we might feel that we have some kind of knowledge of Venezuela or of Cuba or of Vietnam. (coughs) Excuse me. I got a cough. (coughs) Jesus. (coughs) Don't smoke. (coughs) Anyways, um... Because of the imperialist mindset we're imbued with, but also because of capitalism's competition and necessity for creating racial, ethnic, sexual, gender-based, religious-based, and other forms of discrimination, segregation, and separation. So by that measure, of course, we know that something like Rainer Shea's uh, kind of super white (laughs) uh, criticism of someone like Gerald Horn and the ridiculous critiques that you commonly hear out of the West about 
actually existing socialism. Again, don't really hold any weight to, like, the actual revolutionaries of the world and of the global south. Um, They don't really matter to people who are really building uh, revolutionary projects. Now, surely can we learn from, make sincere criticisms of these different actually existing socialist processes? Surely. But those get drowned out en masse by and large by just insincere, racist, xenophobic, and ignorant just commentary that amounts materially to little to nothing given that the majority of those who spend their time criticizing like they do Venezuela or China or Cuba have not and are not building a successful revolution, social movement, socialist project here on Turtle Island. And so what exactly can we expect or concern ourselves with when it comes to children bickering online while doing nothing of the sort that they are demanding the rest of the world do. We have every excuse in the book for why we don't organize, for why we don't care for why we don't involve ourselves and this is I I promise you this my friends this is not to criticize or chastise those of us who genuinely want to get involved and organize and simply struggle to find the means and opportunities and ways to do so successfully and principally and frequently as we might like. My point is that there are more media commentators than I can count on the left center and right who portray themselves as some omnipotent and all-knowing being which is passing down judgment on a really existing like actually exists revolutionary movement, national liberation struggle, or people's movement. 
That serves imperialism. Because at the end of the day, you, with your words, cannot do anything more than what the people there themselves are doing already with their actions. That means that we don't need to know what you think about Xi Jinping. We don't need to debate about Bolivarian socialism as if that is even anything that we would use here. But we especially do not need to belittle and chastise and put down and demean and dehumanize fucking people who are like struggling for survival. This goes back to my point about, you know, there's only so much you can do under a siege and how mistakes are going to be made, imperfections are going to exist. You're not going to have an equal and equitable society that just won't exist in socialism. It's a process to get there. Um, But there are people who literally have given their lives not just like been shot and killed or gone to prison but gave up on dreams gave up on you know maybe a a passion of theirs or an opportunity to make money to be popular to be prominent to be a celebrity or to make wealth off of putting down the revolution to make wealth off of oppressing the people, policing them people have given up these lives so as to be able to build something different something new and for us here in the imperialist core inside of a nation that has been the primary player in the cultivation of the circumstances and the environment which has led to the degradation and destruction of the global south's population while doing nothing of the sort like what they in the global south are doing to put down the reactionary ruling class governments and people to rid ourselves of the capitalist system Or to put an end to things like racism or colonialism. The weakness and the fragility of the Western left comes from 
its unwillingness to unite with the truly revolutionary forces of the international population. It comes from a necessity in a capitalist society to compete, to step on and step over those around you. But more than that, because how easy would it be? How easy is it for those in the global south to do that to one another? How natural, quote unquote, is it made to be? And yet we see in the most impressive conditions around the world where people don't have food, where people don't have an education, where people don't have any legitimate means of subsistence, of survival, where their actual ability to labor is so increasingly expended on a daily basis that their lifespans are lesser, that they die of exhaustion, of heart disease and of lung disease and of cancers that come from the chemicals and the products which they are forced to produce and use. Simply so that they can make a meager wage which oftentimes does not even afford them a hospital visit, a vehicle, an extra meal. That is what super exploitation and imperialism is. So within this context where things like super exploitation and imperialism exist, right? We have to have strategies and tactics, international ties and relationships which allow us to overcome the strategies, tactics, international ties, and relationships that the imperialists themselves have. Because that is one thing that always keeps capitalism afloat, is international relations and ties and protections, which, you know, different European powers, different capitalists within former or current colonial situations uh, actually benefit from is having this almost like unspoken spoken organization of the wealthy and of the powerful (coughs) who then you know in a crisis where a national liberation struggle becomes popular or where a socialist revolution succeeds that the capitalists and the exploiters and the business owners and the militarists and the uh, fascists and the counter-revolutionaries who ultimately want to see further exploitation and further oppression of 
the native population of their own nation, but also, you know, want to benefit from the general imperialism around the world, go on to come and live in the United States, like Jair Bolsonaro, or like the fascists and the terrorists who help to bomb and shoot down planes and terrorize civilians in Cuba. Um, They all come to stay in the States. Isn't that convenient? And so you have like a hyper centralization of the reactionary forces here, which will, of course, necessarily lead to further reactionism and further ideological and just general confusion among the population because there's so many right-wingers, there's so many fascists, there's so many capitalists who are here who are on the board of directors or on the uh, committees of this media conglomerate or this college or this police uh, you know, foundation or this charity or this nonprofit or this, you know, uh, military intelligence agency or this tech startup, um, because they're the ones with the capital, they're the ones with the, uh, administrative experience, they're the ones with the military history, they're the ones who put down or tried to put down the revolutionaries in their own countries, and so, of course, the United States is gonna roll out the fucking red carpet for them, because... Who was giving them the guns? Who was funding them? Who was giving them the instructions? The United States. So, anyways, I got a couple more points I want to make. This is going to be a little bit of a longer episode. It might seem a little disconnected, but I swear to God, all these points are interrelated. Um, There was just a recent release of some document that said that the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline was done by some pro-Ukrainian group. And I didn't even so much as fucking read the article. And you want to know why? Because there was already a pure evidence-based article on Substack published by Seymour Hirsch that basically, without much room for denial, showed that the United States and their friends in NATO helped to, you know, schedule, basically, a fake operation. But I shouldn't even call it a fake operation. It's a real military operation practice with, it was either Denmark or or, uh, Norway, I can't remember, um, to place and then disarm underwater mines. And then they just left some. And then they blew up a couple months later. I mean, how much more fucking obvious could it be? Seymour Hirsch, Substack. Check it out. But I bring this up because it looks as if, and I don't want to pretend as if I'm looking into a crystal ball here, but it looks as if there's some serious cracks and fissures within, like, the, that, that imperialist organization, because now you're seeing groups like 
neo-fascists from Ukraine who previously have tried or have sought out, maybe individually, uh, NATO status, um, been armed and funded by the CIA, by USAID, by the National Endowment for Democracy. But now because... You know, the United States doesn't have as much of a foundation to stand on as Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Germany, uh, France, and many other countries either question, uh, consider, criticize, or move away from the imperialist system as it exists now. Not necessarily to build a socialist one, or not necessarily to build a revolutionary one, but... You know, some countries like Saudi Arabia might just be looking for uh, a better market um, in China or with Chinese uh, yuan. And so things change. And that's the way of the world. And it's slow. And it's a process that I don't think any of us can really fully predict or know how it's going to go step by step ahead of time. But where if you're looking close enough, you can start to kind of make some general guesses about like, you know, what could happen. And I really do think that in our lifetime, there is a genuine reality where the United States is not the economic or productive or uh, political like unipolar power around the world because you know if you really study history rather than trying to as I and others do for the sake of simplicity try to generalize things you recognize that the United States only had a very brief period where it was truly like the global power. And that period is over with and has been for like 30 years. Um, Even with the fall of the Soviet Union, it really wasn't like Europe or, you know, reactionary forces across the third world where India and China and uh, Germany and France didn't have like a, a serious need to sign on for the U.S. to really fully get away with everything it wanted. There was a lot of stuff throughout history that the U.S. had wanted to do that the real, real, real far-right reactionaries in government or outside of the government would have liked to have done like nuke Korea or nuke Vietnam or, you know, nuke China or nuke basically any area of question or tension. Which, when, you know, the Europeans and the false democracies around the world 
looked at those as, you know, plain, bold-faced examples of the falseness of their own democracy, of their own freedom, of their own peace, and couldn't allow that because they would have to reckon with and face the fact that they've already allowed it. And so the U.S. couldn't really do it, you know? But yet, and this is why these things are complex and contradictory, they did do a lot of things, like assassinate JFK, like going to Vietnam, going to Korea, going to Panama, going to... uh, the Dominican Republic, go into Honduras, go into um, Nicaragua, uh, into Colombia, into Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, Iran, um, into Georgia, into Ukraine, into Poland, into Romania, into Lithuania, into South Vietnam, into South Korea, into Australia, Japan. Italy, all of the Balkan states, they did get away with this. But this was because, to some extent, all of the other imperialist and capitalist powers benefited. With the overthrow of Libya, the African uh, you know, powerhouse, the capitalists and the imperialists in Africa and in the global north benefited. The destabilization for 20 years of West Asia after a much longer campaign by European colonialism to destabilize destabilize that region as well benefited the capitalists and imperialists in those regions and in the global north. So when we have expectations of things like Put a stop to the war in Ukraine or withdraw troops out of Syria or, you know, stop sanctions on Cuba and take them off the state sponsor of terrorism list. We're not saying, oh, all you got to do is ask these folks and they'll just stop. What we're saying is that there's a very clear and honest hypocrisy here which the majority of us are so confused and enamored by because we can't even barely survive and we're watching ridiculous and consuming ridiculous media and we're left uneducated and ignorant. So many of us can barely even read or write. A lot of us have no time so much as even wipe our ass, let alone read an article on Substack about the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline when we have no real interest outside anything other than am I going to have enough money in my bank account at the end of this week to pay my bills? And so, of course, a sizable majority of the population will be confused. That is on purpose. But when we talk about these things, what we're trying to do is we're trying to break away from that confusion. We're trying to break down that confusion. And we're trying to find among the confused masses and among the ignorant populations and among the, you know, left sorts or progressive sorts of forces, those who will break away from their ignorance and fight for 
real revolutionary national liberation, socialist or other struggles that benefit more than just themselves or those who are inclined towards their particular interests. So like examples of yesterday and the day before when the National Network on Cuba had called for folks to call into the White House to demand that Joe Biden and the uh, Democratic Party institution and you know the capitalist class government in the United States remove Cuba from the state sponsor of terrorism list because it's leading to a lot of further sanctions and not only just is it leading to you know actual legal quote unquote because none of this is really legal um, stipulations that stop trade but it's also leading to a fear of corporations or of banks and nations excuse me who don't want to get put on this list as well who then say no we're not going to send syringes to Cuba we're not going to transfer this wired uh, you know aid of cash uh, from this United States bank account to this uh, Cuban bank account we're not going to let family members send remittances home we're not going to allow for you know things like medical supplies or energy sources or car parts get sent to Cuba because if we do and you know the uh, Department of Commerce or the United States government NAFTA, NATO, whoever you know gets the hit first finds out we're gonna see all of our resources depleted so in that case you have no other avenue than for these nations to try and try again any and all strategies that they can find to provide enough food to their population, to give free education, to give uh, health services for free, to allow everyone to participate to whatever level they are willing and able to in organizing society, in politics, in uh, the economy, in whatever sector of the, you know, life that you live eventually these nations that stand up against imperialism kind of fall into a sink or swim position as soon as you stand up and you say fuck the imperialists and they point their guns at you now you have to either repeat yourself and you know suffer the blows that are going to come and figure out a way to survive or you got to pretend that you didn't say that and see your population, you know, massacred, your national sovereignty stolen away, your economy and resources taken, you know, piracy of, like kind of just absolute, I didn't want to use stolen again, I don't know, I was trying to be clever. (laughs) 
So you see, folks, I'm just a person, too. I make mistakes. I don't know everything. Some of the shit I'm saying here, they might need to be developed more. I might have misspoken. Call me out. Call me out. Um, but, yeah, no, I've been reading Das Kapital with some homies, and, like, these points kind of come through pretty well when we talk about things like commodity fetishization uh, and the focus on just the simple, like the production of commodities for the sake of the production of commodities for selling commodities and exchanging them with other commodities. Um, You know, something like that is hard when the nations who provide the most money, materials, and, you know, labor opportunities, I should say, for, I don't really know how to put it. My point being, like, again, when you stand up against the imperialists, it's really hard to have, like, malls. Or, like, when you stand up against the imperialists, it's really hard to have, like, open elections. Because the imperialists will take advantage of this. So, I guess the the long and short of what I want this episode to kind of conclude on is just the... Huh. Well, a couple things. One, the need to really correct our mistakes as individuals and as organizations rather than focusing on trying to play God and correcting the mistakes of others. The second being that the majority of these things that we're dealing with are kind of like economic, political, and social necessities within our context. And so to expect either A, that you can reform them out, or B, that those who call for reforms are always of the belief that you can reform these things out, is, you know, kind of ignorant because first and foremost, we know that within this system, you can't just, you know, spit shine a part of it and now it's different. But also people who make demands for things like spit shine, so like a stop to the increase in the age of pensions uh, at in France or the, you know, revocation of the Child Care Act for extra child care funds during the pandemic or the demands for a higher minimum wage. That doesn't mean that we who call for them necessarily think these are the end-all be-all or the solution. But there are those who do and we need to figure out a way to educate and expand on these uh, relationships and organizations in order to not only gain these material benefits, but rather than allow them to push us further towards a praise of the capitalist system or a willingness to participate in the context and the way things are, instead pushes us further and further towards an organized class which is revolutionary and which wants to see an end to the capitalist system once and for all. So, like, for example, it is historically evident that settler populations in North America and across the world will be used to struggle for things like, again, a higher minimum wage or pensions or workers' rights or certain legal systems 
But the colonial population or the colonized people don't benefit from those unions, don't get in, don't even get let into those unions. You know, those uh, laws don't benefit the enslaved. Those uh, conditions don't improve in the sweatshops. Um, and so because we have to reckon with colonialism and imperialism in its present forms and its past, we have to understand that capitalism as it exists today cannot exist without those violent, extremely exploitative, uh, oppressive positions, labor uh, fields and practices. If it weren't for the transatlantic slave trade, the genocidal campaign against indigenous populations of the Americas, the capture and theft of the wealth to come from the third world, and the extreme levels of control and exploitation embedded into the cultures and societies around the world, we see an immense amount of wealth and capital and resources and technology that is accumulated in certain centers like in North America or in Europe and leads towards the creation of certain career paths or fields, jobs, and divisions of labor that rather than creating or improving the productive forces or the modes of production, in fact, simply exist to recreate and reproduce either the social relations the religious practices, the political structures, the economic system of the nation-state, such as professional bureaucratic and administrative positions, such as institutional positions in colleges and in nonprofits and uh, the different religious institutions, the movement-type institutions, as well as the reactionary institutions, which try to skim the fat of the popular uprisings and upheavals so as to push people further away from real revolution and push them more into the participation with the system. And that's kind of what I meant by my last point when I was saying that we want to be able to struggle for things like, you know, quote-unquote, uh, well, we want to be able to struggle for things like reforms in a way that actually leads to a revolutionary situation rather than struggling for our reform as an end to the revolutionary situation. And that's very difficult, and that's something that we have to learn from the black masses of not only North America, but of the African continent. It's something we have to learn from 
Central and South America from the indigenous populations. That's something we have to learn from people who have struggled against colonialism, imperialism, fascism, capitalism all over the world and rectify the mistakes that they may have made not by chastising or belittling their movement as a whole but rather uplifting their movement as a whole and reflecting on and learning from the lessons that can be learned within our own organizations and movements. So lastly, as we kind of come to a close on this episode, I want to say that when we talk about things like organizing, we commonly mystify what we mean by that. When we talk about history, we mystify what we mean by that. When we talk about struggle and class struggle, we mystify what we mean by that. We talk in these generalized terms or with vocabulary and academic language that, you know, like I myself, as I'm using these words, don't even really fully know what they all mean. Um, Couldn't probably explain them to you very well if I was asked to. But what I'm trying to glean from this experience and from these experiences around the world and why I do try to talk about these things even as I am beginning to learn about them is because the purpose for me and my life is never going to be a job. It's never going to be academia. It's never going to be making someone feel lesser than me. It's never going to be consuming because, you know, as much as I might try to or do enjoy some of these things, what strikes me and has always kind of pushed me away from really being the type that could dive into hustle culture or who could really, like when I was even door dashing, like I never dashed for more than a couple hours. I know people who would go for 20 hours who will sleep in their car and keep their notifications on and their sound on. So like they'll get woken up by a notification to go. And that's what's happening to, you know, people around the world in the global south where the gig economy is overtaking their nations. Um, Sorry, I was trying not to sneeze. Um, what, What struck me, you know, was that it doesn't feel like good, you know? Like, I could, I, I could and have tried to, like, really jam schoolwork and information into my brain so I can, you know, go into a certain career field. I've tried really hard to, like, not care about anything other than just, like, you know, doing well at my job. I've tried to, like, care (laughs) about my jobs, you know, more than just simply not losing them. And it just, like, doesn't, like, it doesn't benefit me. Like, I could, I could genuinely 
sincerely concern myself with the ins and outs of my, you know, uh, employer and try to, you know, build this loyalty and feel connected and give my all and then come next fiscal year, they could lay me off and not feel any resent or, uh, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Not feel guilty for it. It's just business. So, you know, from the experience of being treated like less than a human being by my bosses for my entire life, because I've mostly only worked blue-collar jobs, um, more physical labor jobs, uh, I've always been made to be like, you know, just the piece of shit who took the $12 an hour job. Or the asshole who doesn't have a college degree. Or the kid who, you know, smokes weed and cooks food and cleans and then fucks off and goes home. Like, you know, as far as, far as my boss was concerned, I was just some person. So, it's like, always been weird to me that, like, my, my folks, my parents told me, you know, you want to work hard because that's really, like, the meaning of life, right? Is to, like, work hard. Um, is there crazy Protestant assholes? But, like, the goal is to work hard and to really commit yourself to show pride in your work and honor to God in your labor. Um, but also, like, to to work because that's like what life is for that's that's how you make money that's like how you get a house that's that's how you go on vacation just just work just work josh just go to work just work go to school and go to work go to school and go to work go to work go to school (coughs) but eventually you know that this like very quickly became not enough Even when I was going to school for things that, like, I enjoyed. I wasn't learning about them from a perspective that was, like, helpful. I wasn't learning interesting information. I wasn't learning history for the sake of being able to use it as a tool to change the world. And so, you know, whether it was my job cooking meals for people who were paying... 15 bucks for a breakfast burrito, but yet I was only making $11 an hour. Um, Whether it was, you know, babysitting kids for people who genuinely could not give a fuck about their children, like genuinely does not, do not care who is taking charge of their children, do not have any concern for their children. Um... And then being the one that, you know, works really hard to make the breakfast burrito taste good so that I don't get yelled at and so that the customer enjoys it and having a good relationship and being cordial and being friendly or, you know, taking the time to really get to know the kids that I was watching and being, uh, you know, a positive role model and trying to be there for them and try to fight against some of the more ridiculous tendencies that children have of bullying each other and being mean and stuff like that. And then to be, like, chastised or punished by my boss because, like, I didn't follow a rule 
or because like I wasn't wearing a uniform or because I swore or something like that. Like it always just blew me away that I was like, I am putting so much time and energy into just trying to do this right. And like, there's legitimately no benefit coming from it. I literally am not even able to afford like, like I wasn't able to go to college after my associate's degree because of the expenses that I would incur not working. Like, I'm very lucky in that I would have a lot of aid opportunities uh, that would probably get me into any state school for free um, because I was in foster care. However, for those of us who go to college, uh, we know that it's really difficult to work 40 hours a week and go to school full-time. Um, even go to school full-time and work part-time or go to school part-time and work part-time or full-time. It's not easy at all. And I didn't want to do it because I didn't, I didn't have that drive. I didn't have a career field that I thought was going to save me from poverty. I didn't have a dream of labor that I thought was going to bring me uh, fulfillment. Because I know that you know, in all honesty, I will never and you will never find fulfillment in a job. Because guess what? A few things. One, you're not working that job because you want to. You're working that job because you have to. Because unless you're born rich, you have to work to live. The second thing is you're not working that job as you might want to work that job. So say something even like nursing. Say you genuinely give a fuck about people and you want to be a nurse. Well, guess what? You're short-staffed. You don't have any of the medicine you need. You're tired. Your boss doesn't give a fuck about the patients. The hospital is going under because it's getting sold to a third-party corporate uh, you know, firm. And uh, they just told you that now you have to go back to school to become a registered nurse because you're only an LPN. And not only that, but like, It's not like you get to just be a caretaker to a person. You have to take care of like an entire ward. Or, you know, split it between three, four people. So even then, the quality, the concern, the care that might go into that that labor is no longer there. And it's not possible. And yet we go on making each other feel bad or making ourselves feel bad when we have, you know, a bad day at work or when we're not grateful or appreciative for the fact that we get to sell our lives, our labor power, eight hours a day, five days a week at least, just to be able to eat fucking shit ass McDonald's to go broke paying rent. And to not even be able to smoke as much weed as you want because, like, you legitimately can't afford to spend another $30 on anything. Um, Like, that's where (laughs) the majority of the world's population is at or worse. So, as regards the question of, you know, what to do about it, how do we organize, how do we get out of here, I think that there's plenty of examples to be had in the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles especially 
but even like workers struggles here in the United States I mean one of the main things that we need to do is we need to connect with one another if you have a you know a shared concern a shared interest or a shared obstacle form a organization or a campaign around that if you have people in your locality sorry if you have folks in your area who are struggling with things like poverty or homelessness or hunger try to figure out what has been what is and what could be done about that reach out to the organizations in your area whether they're you know uh 501c3s or you know community-led projects or a student group or a trade union um just for the sake of you know making those connections and you know use your own intuition your own instincts to decide which groups should and shouldn't be you know struggled with or struggled against um but more than anything don't isolate yourself don't think that you or you and your friends or your organization is going to take on the world or is going to take on poverty or is going to take on u.s imperialism or is going to take on prisons or is going to take on hunger and be able to get rid of it when there have been entire nations of millions of people, of billions of people, who have struggled for these things and yet have taken years and decades to even come up with a successful struggle. So my last point here is, friends, that, you know, organizing more than anything is trying to encourage and embolden the action, the rhythm, the motion, the agitation, the dynamism of what already exists, which is the people's want for liberation. And it's very deep. You know, a lot of people are ignorant. A lot of people are racist. A lot of people are homophobic. A lot of people are reactionary. That doesn't mean those are the folks you want to focus on and spend all your time trying to work out those issues because we're not magicians here. We're not prophets. We're not seeking to, you know, take the, uh, the unclean masses of sinful humans and turn them into godlike creatures. We want revolution. And so, you know, go where the revolutionaries are. Look at the organizations and people groups who have actually led protests or had demonstrations or fuck shit up in your area. Look at the people who are calling out the cops in the newspaper or on the, you know, social media platforms of your local community. And look at, you know, how you can connect with them. Even if it's something simple like a reading group or a cup of coffee or a demonstration where 10 of you go out and demand that Cuba be removed from the state sponsor of terrorism list. Or 10 of you start figuring out how to clean guns and how to shoot and how to you know, defend yourself in hand-to-hand combat and how to, you know, uh, do doula work and uh, birth coaching and reproductive justice and uh, mutual aid efforts and more militant stuff, if you can call it that. Uh, But also never forget the ideological, the political and the educational aspect that needs to go along with that and the fact that the people need to be plugged into and a part of that as well. But anyways, folks, that's all for me. Looking forward to hearing what you have to think and talking with you folks soon. All power to the people. Uh, Peace, love, and socialism. Talk to you soon.